You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. As we are continuing through our little series on, not that little, it's probably going to be kind of long, on the book of Joshua. Um, Courage is the title, but we're not really talking about courage that much today. Joshua chapter 3, this is an exciting passage. Maybe you've been waiting for a very long time for something, waiting to retire, Brandon, waiting to get married or go to college or whatever. You know what that season's like. This passage is an exciting one. They've been waiting 40 years for this day. They've been waiting 40 years to finally cross the Jordan River and mark their way into the promised land. They've been waiting 400 years as slaves in Egypt to get there. Um, Abraham waited like 100 years to have a kid to even get to the promised land. They've been waiting a long time, and today's the day in Joshua chapter 3 that they're making their way across the Jordan River and into the promised land. So let's read this together. Joshua chapter 3. Verse 1, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. And at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp, and they commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. And there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length, about a half mile. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way to go, for you haven't been this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, make yourselves holy, sanctify yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here, listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you. And that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Gergesites, Amorites, Jebusites, all the ites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from from each tribe of man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of All the earth, when these souls shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, then the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above will stand up in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, Now the Jordan overflows all its banks through the time of harvest. They're in monsoon season. It's rainy. The waters coming down from above, as soon as this happened, they stood up and they rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that's beside Zarethan. And those flowing down towards the Sea of Arab, the Salt Sea, they're all completely cut off. And people passed over opposite to Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on the dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, And all of Israel was passing over on dry ground 
until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, This is a story about crossing a river. It's a story about marking your way into a new land, right? There's a lot of famous river crossings we could think about. Uh, December 25th, 1776. It's cold, it's snowy. Surprise river crossing from George Washington. Brandon even, yes, military man, he knows. Crossing in, crossing the Delaware River. Maybe you've seen the picture of him like standing up on the front of the the boat. Uh, Surprise crossing of the river and caught the the British Army unsurprised and, and sort of turned the course of the war around. Or more recently, not a river, but close crossing the French Channel into um, the English Channel, uh, D-Day, you know, uh, storming the beaches of Normandy to cross this sort of natural water barrier and say, we're here now, we're in Europe. Uh, we have rivers that serve as borders here. Um, we Rivers often separate us. They often work as natural defenses. And this River Jordan was no different. This was not a huge river, but it's kind of like the Santa Cruz, uh, maybe a little bigger. Yeah, Santa Cruz at Ina and... Uh, Ina and Cortero, right, where it kind of spreads out a little bit. This, the, the Jordan River was about a half mile wide and normally about 18 to 30 inches deep. So you could normally walk across it pretty much anywhere. There's a lot of places you can walk across it that are a lot easier than right in front of Jericho, but they've chosen to do it right in front of Jericho. And there's a lot of times of the year where you can walk across it and it's pretty simple, but they've chosen to do it in monsoon season, in flood season, when the Jordan's now like a mile wide and super deep. And like, it's really silly. In this passage, we're going to see God working in some silly ways. This is how the book of Joshua works, right? Last week, they sent spies to Jericho to get some sort of intel. All they did was meet a former prostitute and then come back. And now they're going to go, and when they finally get to Jericho, and walk around the city and do nothing that any spies would have told them to do. Uh, in this passage, they're going to finally cross the Jordan River after waiting 40 years to do so, but not by making pontoons or building a bridge or going at the right place or going at the right time. They're going to do it completely by God's way in a way that makes no tactical sense. And this is going to show us, I think, some helpful things. Uh, when this fall we're reading uh, the Old Testament with our students on Wednesday nights, and we're talking about how do we do this? How do I read the Old Testament? And I've got three big questions that I've been challenging with on Wednesday nights for our students. I'm going to have those as our three big points or questions today. When I read this passage, anyone in the Old Testament, what does this passage tell me about God? What does this passage tell me about God's character? Like, why did they cross the river in this way at this time? What is it telling me about God's character? How does this passage point me, uh, what does it tell me about myself? That's normally the only way we read the Bible. But what does this passage tell me about me, what it means to be human? Garrett, where am I in this passage? And then the third point, the hardest one, maybe the most creative one, where do I find Jesus in this passage? Really hard in the Old Testament, right? The word Jesus isn't here. Like, this is hard. But where does this passage point me towards the gospel or prefigure this coming of Christ? And so that's what I'm going to try to do for us as we read this together this morning. What does this passage tell me about God? Uh, how does it, what does it tell me about myself, what it means to be human? And how does this, how do we get to God, how do we get to the gospel from this passage? So Joshua 3, uh, this passage tells us something really interesting about God. Uh, they cross the Jordan River in the least tactical way possible also, right in front of the city of Jericho. And, and this tells us in this passage, we see they do this not through bridges or anything else, but through the Ark of the Covenant. And they're invited to pass in front of this Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark of the Covenant, it shows us God's holiness. In this passage, we see God inviting us into his holiness. 
Last week, Pete happened to mention Indiana Jones. I'm also going to talk about it because it's great. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Maybe when you think of the Ark of the Covenant, this is a picture that you are familiar with. If you haven't, sorry, it's been out for a long time. But uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Nazis are chasing down the Ark of the Covenant because like the Philistines and judges, they thought it was this super weapon. And if they could just steal it, then they would be able to harness its power. And at the end of the movie, they get the Ark of the Covenant and they open it up to see what's inside of it. And everyone who looks upon it dies. Indiana Jones saves himself by covering his eyes. It's the least dramatic of all of his ways to save himself. But the Ark of the Covenant, this, this shows us some, that movie shows us some things that are really wrong about how we understand the Ark. It also shows us some things that are really right. Like it's really wrong because the Ark of the Covenant is never a weapon. It's just a box. It's a box inlaid with gold and with cherubim on top with special stuff in it, but it's never powerful in and of itself. It's just a box. Uh, it's wrong because the, the Ark of the Covenant is not meant to be wielded by us, but something that we go to access. It was right because, as it showed in the movie, the Ark of the Covenant is dangerous. It is powerful, not because it inherently is powerful, but because it represents God's holiness. And in this passage, we see God inviting us into his dangerous holiness. You know that word holy, we use it in church a lot. It means other. It means set apart. Something that's taken out of normal usage and said, this is special. This is holy. And God takes his holiness and it dwells in the Ark of the Covenant. In the tabernacle, it's supposed to be like God's palace and the, th the, the throne room is the Holy of Holies. And in the center of this throne room, in the center of all ancient Near Eastern temples, you would have a copy of the God that you worship, right? This is the same way today. And except in the Hebrew tabernacle or temple, when they went to the throne room to see the, the image of God, there was no image. It was empty. Like multiple people that conquered them were very confused by this because they went and they finally get into the Holy of Holies. This guy that only one, only one place, only one guy goes in there one day a year. It's this very special room and they're waiting to see what, what does the Lord Yahweh look like and the room's empty. There's just a box in the center. The Ark of the Covenant is not an image of God. It's actually supposed to be the footstool to his throne. So this is how God chooses chooses to show himself to us, not with a physical image, but with the Ark of the Covenant that's the ottoman for his feet to sit on while he's on his throne. It's, it's so big and it's so glorious, and yet it's just the footstool. And he says, like, this is my holiness. It's so other. When we think about uh, holiness, you know, it's, it's something that's dangerous. To be set apart is to be other, right? Like, that's the center of every horror movie. Right? No horror movie is scary if you can see the bad guy or bad thing's face. Like As soon as the, the jump scares you once or twice, you're no longer hooked. But it's, it's this idea of other. I don't understand that. I don't know what it is. That's what's scary. And this otherness of God is both scary, it's also dangerous. His holiness has real power. And in this passage, he displays it dramatically, right? He stops up a river. This is like Joshua's Red Sea moment. They marched into the promised land, and one of the gods that Jericho happened to worship was a river god. And so what does he say to that? He says, like, you think the river's cool? I will stop it up as we walk in. We don't need to wait around the river. We will just march right in because that is how other, how holy, how special our God is. And this holiness of God, it's always a little bit, Indiana Jones is a little bit right. It's always dangerous, right? 
Moses says, I want to see you, like the worship song from the 2000s. I want to see you. I want to touch your face. Yeah, thank you. No, thank you for laughing. You're supposed to laugh because it's a little bit silly, right? Moses says, I want to see you. And God says, you want to see me? You'll die, right? Like this is, this is Exodus 33. He says, you want to see me? Like I'm going to hide you in a rock so that you don't die. And his hair still turns white. Um, God's holiness is dangerous. And yet in this passage, we see God's character on display because he invites Israel to pass by his holiness. He invites us, he invites you, God's people, to pass into his holiness. Um, he, he invites us into this dangerous holiness. Verse seven, he says to Joshua, I'm gonna be with you like I was with Moses. This is a wonderful promise for us. As God's people, we're gonna have access to God like Moses did, like Joshua did, right? Now, he's speaking to his people in Israel. Our country today is not the modern-day Israel. Sorry if that's offensive, but it shouldn't be. We're not Israel, right? Uh, But he says to you, the church, you are God's people. I am going to be with you like I was with Israel. To Joshua, I'm going to be with you like I was with Moses. I'm inviting you into this relationship, into this holiness. And verse 10, he says, how are you going to know that I'm really on your side, right? In their time, they're not questioning whether or not God's real. They're questioning whether or not God's good. And he says, I am on your side. You're going to know this because I'm going to demonstrate my power before you. And they get to watch it in real life. And then verse 11, that's where he says, the ark is going to pass right in front of you. Behold, the covenant of the Lord is of all the earth. It's passing over you before you into the Jordan. And they got to walk around it. They stay behind it, but then they got to walk around it to get through the center of the river. And they get invited into this dangerous presence. It must have been kind of scary, too, because for 40 years, they'd maybe seen the ark being built. They'd given jewelry and stuff to melt down for the gold. But then it had been in the tabernacle, and no one had seen the thing for 40 years. And now they get to walk around it at a distance, but around it. And God invites them into this holy presence And when we think about holiness, I already said it's meant to be set apart. That could be a good thing or a bad thing. You know, middle school, I was very set apart, not in a holy way, just in a weird way. Like I had an awesome belt with my name stamped on it. Like those are still cool, but I didn't, I didn't have a cool kind. And then I like, you know, it's like, if I've got a belt on, I got to tuck my shirt in all the time. If I've got a button, I got to button it up. Like if I have socks, going to pull them up. All those things are somehow back in style in, in ways, but they were not in style when I was in middle school. I can tell you that. And uh, I, I was very set apart, you know, not in the positive way. God is set apart in a positive way. He's holy. Isaiah 6, maybe my favorite picture of God's eternal holiness. Isaiah is in the throne room of God. Maybe even seeing the Ark of the Covenant with his feet propped up on it. I don't know. But he's in the throne room of God. And there's cherubim and there's seraphim. And they're chanting in perpetuity. They're chanting three times over, over and over again, holy, holy, holy. It's all they can say. What is God? He is holy, holy, holy. He's completely other. He's completely special. He's completely set apart. And he's invited to enter into this holy presence of God, something that could be utterly terrifying, worse than any horror movie you've ever seen. And yet God invites you. He invites me. He invites his people into his holiness into his otherness, and he makes himself known, no longer terrifying, but welcoming and friendly. And Hebrews 4 tells us we can now in Christ draw near to his throne with confidence, which is amazing news, right? There's no reason that this should take place. The only reason the Lord of the universe 
needs to invite you into his throne room is because he loves you. The only reason that God needs to move out of his otherness and into our lives is because of this overflow of love within the Trinity. There's no other reason that this all-powerful being needs to make an effort to get to know us. And yet God does. He's holy, holy, holy. This is amazing news. This passage also tells us something more specific about ourselves. What does it say about me? Well, I'm not in here, right? That's kind of hard. Originally, when we look at this passage, we might question where we are. We're still here. We're God's people. This passage tells us about God's people. And it tells us that as God's people, we need to be consecrated. Verse 5, we need to be consecrated. That's a weird word. We don't use that a lot. It's the same word for being made holy, being sanctified, being set apart. We need to be consecrated. It tells us we need to be changed before we can enter God's presence, right? Maybe you've been to a restaurant that like won't let you in without a tie or something. I have not, but I hear they exist. Uh, maybe, you know, you think about like getting dressed up before a big meeting. Um, you need to like wear the right clothes for the occasion, take a shower, wear deodorant, all of those important things. Uh, in the Bible, I love the picture of Joseph in Genesis. Uh, he's been thrown in jail and he's crusty and he's gross and he's been there like, I, I can't imagine what an ancient Egyptian jail was like, but probably not very nice. And um, he's like matted down and he's going to go see Pharaoh. And before he can, the Egyptians clean him up, not because they like him, but because you can't go into the presence of Pharaoh looking like a homeless man. So they take him and they like scrub him down and they shave him and they do his hair and they put a coat on him and they maybe put some fragrances on him so that he can go into the presence of Pharaoh and not be offensive. I'm sure, you know, if you're going to go visit Prince Charles, King Charles, whatever the King of England is, if you're going to go visit the president, they don't just let you in off the street. You need to be cleaned up, ready for this thing. You need to change a little bit. And this passage tells us the same thing. Before I can enter God's holiness, I need to be changed. I need to be consecrated. I need to be set apart. You know, another way to think about this is the, the fun or nerdy or whatever, question, can people really change, right? Think about that. Do you really believe people can change? Can they really change? As Christians, we should have some opinions on this, right? We should believe, I think, that people can't really change all that much on our own, right? That's why we need God. We also should believe that we absolutely can be changed. That's why we believe in Christ, this is great news in this passage because we can be changed and yet we're never going to be able to do it on our own. This passage is promising that this need to be changed before entering God's presence, that it's possible. And it's not only possible, it's going to happen for us if we're God's people. They're going to be consecrated before entering His holiness. So are we, right? This is the, the, the same idea in all of us that we know we're messed up. We know we're sinful. If you're not sure that you're sinful, then just look across to the left or right and you'll find someone you're frustrated with and you'll know that they're sinful and know that they're looking at you. Uh, but we know we're messed up. We know we need to be changed. And God is promising that he can change us. In, in churchy terms, right, this is the idea of sanctification. We try not to use too much vocab here. We want to be uh, accessible to anybody. But this is a good word to know. To be sanctified means to be made holy. So we believe very firmly that we've already once and for all been justified. We've already been saved by the blood of Jesus. He's not dying over and over again. There was one sacrifice. It's done. Like his blood's already been spilled. 
We've been saved by that already, but we're ongoingly, continuously, forever being changed, being made holy, being sanctified. This is not over, right? This is why we continue to improve as we are Christians. This is why we understand that, yeah, I'm going to be frustrated and hurt and damaged by the people even in the church, especially in the church, because they're not yet already sanctified. They're not yet made holy. This is this ongoing process for us. And, and in verse 5, he tells them, it's the same word. Uh, he says, consecrate yourselves, sanctify yourselves, make yourselves holy. You can't come into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant the way you are right now. you got to be cleaned up, not just externally, but your heart needs to change too. In the Old Testament, this is like a bunch of purity laws, right? This is the part of the Bible you skip over in your Bible reading plan. Like this is all the things that we don't remember what they are because we've never read them because we don't have to do them anymore. This, all these purity laws in the Old Testament, they're, they're challenging, right? Sometimes they come across as misogynistic or extremely arbitrary. It says, you know, do this one thing for women, do this thing for guys. It says like all these very specific laws, like why is pork bad, right? There's a lot, of, a lot of purity laws that are challenging. We don't have to follow them today because they've been completely and perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And yet they exist to give them a way, to give them a means of consecrating themselves, of setting themselves apart. You know, Israel was called to be set apart, not like nerdy 16-year-old Garrett, but to be set apart from their nations around them, to be a different nation. The whole group of them was supposed to be weird in their own weird way because God said so. Because God said, I want you, even if these rules seem arbitrary, right? Some of them seem like they're kind of about germs. Some of them are definitely about the heart. Some of them, I don't know. Uh, there's all of these Old Testament cleanliness laws, and they're following these to be set apart, to be special, to be made holy. Today, we don't follow those because Christ did. But today, we have other things that sanctify us, right? Like if we're sitting there thinking, how do I get holy, right? I've accepted Jesus. I want this ongoing thing in my life. How does that happen? Well, there's three main ways we as a church see that happening. Uh, we see that happening. We see this process of being made holy through uh, Scripture, through God's Word, right? We see this in the preaching and teaching of Scripture. You're sanctified as you read it on your own, as we study it in men's and women's small groups and life groups. When we get to know God's Word, something rubs off. We're changed by it. We're sanctified through God's word. We're also sanctified through the sacraments, right? The Lord's Supper. Like each week we do this weird thing where we practice, we proclaim Christ's death again every week, like a death cult. Like why do we do that? We're sanctified each week as we partake of this sacrifice, this once and for all sacrifice that we also spiritually feed upon every week. We're sanctified as we remember our need to do that. As I have to say every week, like, dang it, I still need this. Uh, we're sanctified as we, as we come to that table in confession. We're also sanctified through baptism, right? This marker of entrance into the church, this marker of cleanliness, of being cleaned, like very literally. Uh, there's water, even if we don't use a lot here because we're Presbyterian. But uh, thank you for laughing, Gracie. Uh, no, we're sanctified through that as we, as we choose that or as we watch our children choose that, right? Uh, at some point in your life, uh, you, you've probably, if you're a Christian, you've either made a choice or you've remembered, you never, maybe you never knew a day when you weren't a Christian, but we've entered the church, 
right? And we're sanctified by being in the church and by training our children in that same way. We're sanctified by word, sacrament. We're also sanctified by prayer. Uh, this, there's many, many spiritual disciplines, but you know, prayer is a, a special one. We have communication with this holy and other and potentially foreign God of the universe, but instead he chooses not to be foreign. He's with us. Like He's a God we can communicate with. We can speak to him. We can hear his word. We can read his word, too. Uh, we can communicate with this God. And there's so many spiritual disciplines, but those three are, are really special in that they continue to sanctify you and me uh, in this lifelong process. You know, it's not always an easy process, right? I've been trying to lose some weight. turns out 52 tables is not a good plan for uh, eating. But um, it's, if, it's, if it's working, it's normally not easy, right? If you've tried some New Year's resolutions or exercise, if it's easy, it probably doesn't do very much, right? And this is true when we think about sanctification. We're promised success in the Lord, but we also have to put forth effort. We're never saved by our works, but that doesn't mean we don't believe that we continue, we, we still continue working after we're saved, right? We're not saved by what we do, but that doesn't mean we do nothing. Uh, God's people here, they enter into the promised land through God's work, like, right? It's not going to be their power or their strength uh, that saves them, that gets them into Canaan. But they still have to enter. Like, they still have to do something. They still have to follow him. This is true for us. If you're saying, like, I want this being set apart. I want to figure out how to be more sanctified, how to live uh, in a holy way, how to, like, finally get on the right track with the Lord. You know, you're never going to be saved by what you do. But if you don't do anything, it's going to be really hard to grow. And for us as Christians, there's, you know, I've outlined a couple things already. If we don't put ourselves in the space to grow, then it's just not going to happen, right? It's the same as anything else in your life that you'd like to grow in. If you don't create time and space and put in some effort, it's just not going to happen. But there's this amazing promise. Can people really change? Absolutely, through the Lord. This passage shows us uh, a group of people. Like, can you imagine how dirty they are? They've been in the desert for 40 years, and yet they're consecrated, they're made holy, they're changed so that they can enter into the promised land. What does this passage tell us about Jesus? Third, third point, how does this passage point us to Christ? Last week, a youth group, I asked this, like, where is Jesus in this passage? We were talking about Genesis 1 and 2, and someone was like, I don't know, like, with God? Like, it's not a literal question. We ask, where is Jesus in this passage? It's not on the page, right? He is not in here. This is where it gets hard, reading the Old Testament, trying to find, how does this passage point me to the gospel? How does this passage point me to not just, like, the physical body of Jesus, but what he's doing in this passage and his grace and his love? Um, it, it points us to Christ because it shows us that he is the only way into the promised land. God's Ark of the Covenant, God's holiness, God's work, it's the only way they're getting into the promised land. Jesus is the only way we're getting into our promised land. It's the only way we're getting into heaven. We're getting into the new heavens and the new earth, right? Think about uh, growing up in the southeast in Chattanooga, if you've been there. There's a music festival every summer called Riverbend. Um, I don't know if I would recommend it, but it's a big part of the city. And uh, it's 100,000 hot, sweaty, drunk rednecks 
listening to country music and other things on the edge of the river. They have a real river there. There's boats and everything. And um, it, it, they're, they're all out there. It's a week-long thing. And if you ever go to Riverbend, it's kind of awful. You can't sit down anywhere. They charge a ton of money for everything, including water. Uh, it, people smell bad. There's a lot of men in cut-off T-shirts that don't need to have cut-off T-shirts. Um, there's, you know, people are spitting everywhere. It's not a fun place. But my, one of my best friends, his dad did the taxes for Riverbend. And so every year we got these VIP wristbands. And you fight your way through all the sweaty rednecks. And you get there to the VIP gate. And you come in. And suddenly you're in a totally different world. Like there's coolers and there's fans. It's quiet. There's plenty of room. There's chairs. You get to sit down. There's water. And it's free. Like it's already paid for. There's a masseuse. There's like a guy playing classical guitar. Like it, you get this, this view of the stage. It's this wonderful like haven in the middle of a lot of sweaty, gross people. Um, and like, how do you get in? The only way is with the special wristband. The only way is with the special wristband. Jesus is more than a wristband, but he is also not less than that. Jesus is the only way we make it into the promised land. He is more than just an entrance pass. Absolutely. He is so, so, so much more, right? He wants a relationship with us. He wants to know us. He's more than just like, I signed this card and now I get to go to heaven. But he is never less than our only way into the promised land. This passage points us to Christ because it shows us that. These people, this generation has been wandering in the desert for 40 years, right? Joshua was originally one of the spies. He went into land. He said, I think we can do this through God's power. People said, no, we can't. We're not strong enough. And God said, cool, you're going to wait 40 years until you finally trust me. They're only going to enter the promised land because God says, I'll take care of the Canaanites. And they're, they're ready and they're waiting. And surely they had been like, so when are we going to start building bridges? Like, we got 40 years. Can we like, get some siege weapons going? Like, what are we going to do? And he had them do none of that, right? Instead, they go into the promised land through God's power. Like, we haven't talked about this much, but there was a crazy miracle in this passage, right? They walked out in the center of a river, and the water piled up, and they walked across on dry ground. It's amazing. And they can only do that through God's power. We, too, can only enter the promised land through God's power, right? We're not literally entering Canaan. We're entering heaven. We're entering uh, the new heavens and the new earth. And we can only do this through Christ, right? He wants them to know very clearly, and he wants the people of Jericho and everyone else in Canaan to know, these people are here not because they're awesome, actually because they're terrible. They're here because I chose them and because I parted the waters. And that's all right for him to say because he's God. Uh, with us, we enter heaven never by our own works, but only because God says, you have my righteousness, right? When you stand before the, the pearly gates and you stand before heaven, and, and maybe the entrance angel or whatever we're imagining now says, like, how can you get in? Like, what's your ticket? Where's your wristband? The answer is never, well, here's all the awesome things I've done. Here's how I lived a perfect life. Or here's how I was pretty good. Or here's how I was better than most people. It's never, here's all the things I didn't do. You know, I didn't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do. Like, I didn't do all those things. It's not any of that stuff. <laughs> it will never be because of anything I've done or haven't done that I get into heaven. It is only ever going to be because of the perf perfect person and work of Jesus Christ. I will only enter heaven by his righteousness, by his holiness. That's the only way 
I'm getting in. And maybe you're listening to this and maybe you're not on board. Like, you're, you know, that's a pretty common thing. So that's fine. There's, maybe you're listening to this and like, that sounds good. But like, there's a lot of right ways to, to the end. That's a pretty common belief, especially in Tucson. Um, you know, I challenge with this. If people don't change and they, all the good paths just lead to some sort of generic idea of heaven, then do you really want to go there? <laughs> like, picture this, you know, like think about the people you're frustrated with. I get frustrated driving. Tucson drivers are awful. And, you know, do you really want those people in heaven with you if they're not changed and they're generally good? Like, there's better intellectual reasons to say that Christ is the exclusive way to heaven. But I think that's a pretty compelling one. We need people to be changed before they get to heaven. Otherwise, it's just like earth again. We need people, we need ourselves to be made different. Otherwise, I'm just as annoying there. Like, we need all of these changes and we need someone to get us there to make that change happen. That's, that's Jesus. That's the person of Christ. That's why we believe that he is not just one of many good options. He is the only one, the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father except through Jesus. And he promises, I'm going to get you there. I will get you into this promised land. You know, when we stand there, he's the only reason we get in. I think about uh, Pilgrim's Progress. It's a it's a wonderful story. If you haven't read it, it's 500 years old. Sorry, I'm going to spoil the ending. But in the first third of the book, he becomes a Christian. He, the burdens roll away, he stands at the cross. Then the whole rest of the book, you're, at least when I first read it, I was like, what is he doing for the rest of it? Like, there's a lot of pages left. It's this whole process of sanctification, right? If you remember the story, he wanders around, he gets off trail, he comes back again, he gets saved. There's all of these ups and downs and hurdles, but he's being sanctified for the whole book. And then he's being consecrated. And then he gets to the end. He finally makes it to the celestial city where he's been trying to go on the straight and narrow path. And he looks up to the city and he's like, let's go. We've made it. We're here. And then he realizes there's a river, River Jordan, in front of him before he can enter the promised land. And this river is swollen. It's rushing class five rapids. And yet the path goes straight through this river. And by the end of the book, if you ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll know that by the end of the book, you should really try to stay straight on the path. Straight and narrow is the only way to go. And so Christians finally figured this out. And so he says, okay, I guess I got to go through the river. Like that's, that's it. And he comes in the river and there's this like really dramatic and powerful depiction of death. As Christian is overwhelmed by the waters, he's swept away. He tries to swim. He starts pulling in water instead of air. And eventually he goes under the, the water. He can't make it across the river. But he's pulled out of the water. It says he leaves his mortal body behind, and yet he's still there. Like, what does that mean? Well, that's this whole Christian thing. That he leaves his mortal body behind, and yet he remains he ends up dying, essentially. I didn't get it the first time I read it. But he goes across this river, and he essentially dies in order to finally make it into the celestial city. This is, this is our hope. As morbid as that is, this is why we do this Christian stuff. This is why we're willing to let it change every and all part of our lives. Nothing's held back, because we don't just believe that this is like steps for success now. This is an eternal heaven, an eternal reality we're talking about. Christ is our only way into that celestial city. And he promises even to pull us out of death itself, even to rescue us from death itself. Maybe that's too pertinent of an issue right now. Maybe that's something you are facing or a family member is facing. There's a comfort in this passage that says, I will cross this river for you. Christ has already crossed that river 
for us. He has already gone through even death itself in order to give us new life in him. Christian, in the story, he's lifted out and he joins the celestial city and and enjoys his life there. We're promised this new life uh, in the promised land. But we have to, to cross. You know, there's no way out of this alive. We have to cross that river. And the only way is through Christ. Um, this passage, just to recap, shows us, you know, God's character. It shows us that he's holy, he's other, he's powerful, and yet he invites us, he invites you into that holiness. He wants to dwell with us. Revelation 21, God's dwelling place is with his people, and there's people, and he's their God, and they get to see him face to face. He invites us into his holiness. It tells us about us that we're not holy. We need to be consecrated. We need to change. And without it, we'd be like Moses entering God's presence and dying like the Nazis in the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can't be in God's presence, in God's holiness, without being changed first. And yet he promises he'll do it. And then it points us to Christ by showing us that he's the only way into this promised land. He's the only way into this eternal life is the person and work of Jesus. As hard as that is to hear, and as hard as it is to trust in him, it's also a free gift that we get to do that. Uh, I'll, I'll close with this, uh, one of my favorite hymns on Jordan Stormy Banks. I checked, we don't know it because we don't sing it here. But it's a very good song. Someone told me in the first service, Johnny Cash has a version. I'm thinking of the Indelible Grace version, or there's an older one. But uh, it, it paints this picture of standing on the river Jordan and looking across to heaven, metaphorically. It says, on Jordan Stormy Banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. There in there in heaven, there's no chilling wind nor poisonous breath can reach that helpful shore where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. Rest in that. That's where we're bound. This, the chorus is, I am bound, I am bound for a promised land. This is our hope. We're bound for it. We're going to go there. We're going to end up there. This is our hope in Christ. He will get his people into the promised land. If you place your hope in Christ, he will get you there. He will consecrate you. He will make you whole into that place where there is no sickness, no sorrow, no pain, and no death. I am bound for the promised land. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.